0: name. Uh, I'll, I'll probably ask your name for the next six months. So, and maybe even longer, but but bear with me. Um, I love to get to know people's names. If you would wear a Zoom tag with your name on it and, and a little picture of yourself on Zoom, that'd be really helpful to me. Um, the last church I served was Glendale Presbyterian Church and uh, just finished there. They Today, we should pray for them. They are uh, right in the middle of listening to uh, the person that's going to become their pastor. And uh, so it does, this, it, this time of transition all that, does have a conclusion. And for them, they're going to listen and vote and move forward. And we're glad for them and for their congregation. If you can remember say a prayer for them, they need it. And uh, so will the new pastor, Steve Wiebe. So um, uh, bless them in their search and work. Um, but it's been a gracious beginning for me. And I Look forward to getting to know you. I really don't know anything except what I've read and the few conversations I've had. So everything that you share with me is new information and I and, uh, look forward to it. My task is to um, largely prepare you and to be with you for the future, for the next person that you're going to, the next woman or man that you're going to have be the pastor of this church, the next uh person that comes in to lead and for you to be in a place where you can, can say so clearly who you are that there's a great match. My oldest daughter is getting married in March, and, uh, and people say, well, how did they meet? What was the? Hitch. Hitch. Really? Huh. And so didn't know that, but they met online. And, uh, and after, after meeting a lot of people online, it was such a relief that she met somebody for whom she can share her life. And I think that's the process you all are in. How do you describe yourself so well and get somebody else that can do the same thing that, that it's a match of, of like-mindedness and caring for one another? So, uh, but I could talk about this forever and ever. So let's get on with it. Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 13. Uh, next week I'll begin a series in uh, First Peter called God's Missional People and just talking about what that looks like and what we're called to be as God's people and how we're formed into that. But I wanted to give you a little insight into myself and some things I've thought about for a long time. And uh, this passage does some of that as well. The good news of Jesus Christ, the message, begins here, following to the letter, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Watch closely. I'm sending my preacher ahead of you. He'll make the road smooth for you. Thunder in the desert. Prepare for God's arrival. Make the road smooth and straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wild, preaching a baptism of life change that leads to the forgiveness of sins. People thronged to him from Judea and Jerusalem, and as they confessed their sins, were baptized by him in the Jordan River into a changed life. John wore a camel hair shirt, habit, tied at the waist with a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild field honey. Oh, yum. (laughs) i get that and go i'm so thankful i'm not john the baptist um and as he preached he said this the real action comes next the star in this drama to whom i'm a mere stagehand will change your life i'm baptizing you here in the river turning your old life in for a kingdom life his baptism a baptism a holy baptism by the holy spirit will change you from the inside out. At this time, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee uh, came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in, in the river. The moment he came out of the water, he saw the sky split open and God's spirit, looking like a dove, come down to him along with the spirit of voice. You are my son, chosen and marked by my love pride of my life god's kingdom is here at once the same spirit pushed jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days and nights he was tested by satan wild animals were his companions and angels took care of him and he writes this is god's wake-up call that The sun is blazing through the window. It's a new day. Wipe the sleep from your eyes. There's a new reality. That's what's happening in the Gospel of Mark. That's what he is announcing to the people of Israel. That's what he's announcing to to anybody that will listen. This is a new day. And John the Baptist is the alarm clock. Wake up. Be warned. You're going the wrong way. I just, it's my favorite moment in uh, in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, that movie with John Candy and and Steve Martin. And and they're driving along and you know know the scene, Um, for those of you who've never seen it, go home and you look up on ancient Netflix and it's in there. Um, but, But there's that moment and they're driving late at night and John Candy's falling asleep and he switches to the wrong side of the freeway. There's just nobody on it, not many. And he gets to the other side of this. He wakes up and there's a couple in a car on going the same direction they're going but on the other side of the freeway and says, you're going the wrong way. They keep shouting at them, and, and then John Candy turns to, to Steve Martin and goes, well, how do they know which way we're going? And, uh, and then it gets crazy. They really have gone the wrong way. But John the Baptist saying, be warned. You're going the wrong way. The way of the kingdom is totally different than what's been presented to your senses. The kingdom of God is different than what you naturally feel and think. And as humanity, we're going the wrong way. There's a new way forward, a new one to follow, a new reality to discover. You will um, by the time I'm I'm done with you all, you'll be sick and tired of listening to me talk about C.S. Lewis. Uh, but when I was uh, a student at Cal State Fullerton, um, I discovered Lewis, and uh, early on in my college life, and Lewis well, uh, uh, sparked my imagination as a Christian and uh, prolonged my Christian life at a time when even at in my early late teens and early 20s, I was already getting bored with it. And it seemed like it was uh, just not all that interesting. And uh, so I, I was exposed to the Chronicles of Narnia. You know these books. Um, they, they have, um, the premise is simple. For those of you who don't know it, it's uh, a world called Narnia. It's a parallel existence to our world. Lewis writes during World War II in this time, and, uh, and there's four children that, that get from our world into uh, this other world, Narnia. Narnia has a different time that has a Christ figure in the, in the story. It's Aslan the Great Lion. And each of the stories has a task or a journey that, that everybody has to participate in. And this great lion accompanies them and disappears and comes back and engages them along the way. And Aslan is there for them and with them along the way. And they learn about him. Well, in the second book, and many people consider the second book in a series to be uh, the sophomore jinx for most writers. That this is the book that really just, well, you know, they did really good in the first one. We were all interested. It's sort of like, you know, how was the first Harry Potter book? and the second one, you thought, well, Oh, it won't be as good, but it was. And same thing with this, the second uh, book, Prince Caspian. And you are introduced to um, uh, you're introduced to um, some other characters. I might have it wrong. I uh, yeah, I might be in the wrong spot. But anyways, here here's the story, regardless of which book it's in. Um, Puddle Glum is a, what, a character that's a Marsh Wiggle. Actually, I think it's the, uh, a different book that I'm thinking of. And, uh, but he gets into, they get into Narnia and along with two children. And um, they meet up with a prince that they're there to, to rescue. And they're part of, um, and they get, atta- um, abducted by the Emerald Queen of Underworld, and they're in this world underneath the surface of the world, an alternative world, you could say. And this is what happens. Puddleglum is they're told that um, the sun, this lion, everything else that they believe is all made up. It's just a projection of something that they've valued, that they've brought into Underworld. And the prince and the two children were being enchanted. And this is what happens in this scene. The prince the two children were standing with their heads hung down, their cheeks flushed, their eyes half closed, the strength all gone from them, the enchantment almost complete. But Puddleglum, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire. And then he did a very brave thing. He knew it wouldn't hurt him quite as much as it would hurt a human. A marshwiggle was sort of frog-like with webbed feet. Yeah, strange character, based after Lewis's gardener at his home. And uh, But he did this very brave thing, and he knew it wouldn't hurt him quite as much, for his feet, which were bare, were webbed and hard and cold-blooded like a duck. <laughs> but he knew it would hurt him badly enough, and so it did. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth. Three things happened at once. First, the sweet, heavy smell grew very much less. For though the whole fire had not been put out, a good bit of it had. And what remains smelled very largely of burnt marshwiggle, which is not at all very enchanting. The ins- this instantly made everyone's brain far clearer. This instantly, um, the prince and the children held up their heads again and opened their eyes. Secondly, the witch, in a loud, terrible voice, uttered utterly different from all the sweet tones she had been using up till now, called out, what are you doing? Dare to touch my fire again, mud filth, and I'll turn the blood to fire inside your veins. Thirdly, the pain itself made Puddlegum's head for a moment perfectly clear. And he knew exactly what he really thought. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire limping because of the pain. One word, all you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always likes to know the worst and then put the best face on it. So I won't deny any of what you said, but there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. Before babies, playing a game can make a play world which, which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there's no Aslan. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper. If these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overworld. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. <clears throat> Dee and I were at dinner with um, uh, a New Testament theologian, um, writer, and uh, a teacher, professor who taught in Beirut for many, many years, um, part of our denomination, Ken Bailey, and we were talking about the experiences of people in other parts of the world, their experiences of God, and what seemed fantastical to our Western minds, what they were experiencing, and, and uh, he said this interesting phrase that has stuck with me from then on. He said, said, for them, the ceiling of heaven is lower. That the things of heaven, the things of the kingdom of God, the things that we aspire to, the things that we want, the things that we love most about the Christian life are closer to them. They have less of a barrier. And they interact with it more directly than we do. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the rule of Christ, John the Baptist is saying, is right here, right now. Him. This Jesus. This person. It's Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, And what does the Messiah do? He represents his people. What is true of the Messiah is true of you. Let me say it again. What's true of Jesus is true of you. That's a hard thing for us to swallow, isn't it? That means on several different levels, right? That the things that Jesus cares about are intended to be the things you care about. Or if we really want to take this further, the things that Jesus cares about are the things you care about because you have been born anew into a new life in Jesus Christ. And now that life is merging and growing up inside you. What's true of Jesus? Well, we hear it in our text, don't we? Jesus is told, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, what's true of Jesus is true of Jesus' people. And this is how N.T. Wright translates this. He says, my dear, dear child, I'm delighted with you. And what Jesus does, what God does in this, is to look at you and me and say, my dear, dear child, child I'm delighted in you not just those of you that know me but all of my children everywhere I'm delighted in you even when you don't get it even when you don't get me God is delighted in what he has made God's delighted In you I think it's interesting it happens in Jesus ministry before Jesus does anything for God to be delighted about it's not performance art the Christian faith has nothing to do with that it will lead to action but we don't get more God because we do what he says we get God because God gives God's self to us. It's sometimes impossible, especially to people who have never had this kind of support from earthly parents, but it's true. God looks at us and says, you are my dear, dear children. I'm delighted with you. And the ceiling of heaven is lowered to touch us, each of us. Listen to Tom Wright. A good deal of Christian faith is a matter of learning to live by this different reality, even when we can't see it. Sometimes at decisive and climactic moments, the curtain is drawn back and we see or hear what's really going on. But most of the time, we walk by faith, not by sight. One of the things Mark is trying to say to us in the way he's written this gospel is that when we look at the whole life of Jesus, that's how we are to understand it. Look at this story, he says. Look at his life and learn to see and hear it, in it, the heavenly vision, the heavenly voice. So what's true of Jesus is true of God's people. It's not a gradual shift, it's an earthquake. Let the words that are addressed to you change you. You are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted in you. Let these words change you, mold you, make you somebody new not just keeping the status quo going. It's not just getting through life. We're called to have an abundant life, and that means to be changed radically into kingdom people. Discover in this story the, nor- what the normally hidden heavenly dimension of God's world. I would add to it this Latin phrase that uh, I've used at different times and learned from my friend Todd Bolsinger at San Clemente. Uh, we used it for capital campaigns. Um, I, I would like to remove it from that context in the past. Non nobis solum, not for ourselves alone. That this message of change, the message of my own transformation, is not for me alone. It's not for my own benefit, it's for the benefit of others. That the true change, the true transformation of being God's people isn't for my own self-satisfaction, it's for the transformation of what? Of the world. We have a huge remit. We have a huge task. And it's the transformation of the world. And we don't transform it. We just simply have to announce it's beginning and point to the one who brings it, and that's Jesus. When we do this, we are equipped, as Jesus was, for the desert, for those times when it is dark and there's little evidence that God is with us, when we remember that we are God's dear, dear children. It is then that we will remember We will remember the words spoken of Jesus and applied to his people, and we will find a way through it. I want to leave you with something that is a practice that I've been doing for 20-some years. I I see a spiritual director regularly. Um, I used to see him in person. COVID hit. We started just having phone calls. Uh, he doesn't want to meet in person anymore, so um, I don't blame him. He, he was driving to an office up by the airport, and uh, I would drive to the office by the airport to meet him. And I missed that time in the car where I could simply think through how honest I was going to be with him. But because I was paying him, uh, by the time I got there, I just told him everything. And uh, and I thought I I thought he actually should do this for free, but um, but he didn't. And uh, and uh, he has been more than. Uh, valuable than anything I could have paid him. But uh, his name is Wilkie Al, A-U. He is um, a former Jesuit priest. And uh, if you happen to come across his books, he publishes with Paulist Press. And I would recommend any of his books. Probably my favorite is the... um, um, uh, uh, He's got one just recently on shame that he and his wife wrote. Um, Many different uh, books that are about the heart and the heart of living, and so it, really a helpful person, Wilkie Owl But um, he gave me something to do in prayer uh, some years ago, called the Jordan Prayer, and it comes from this text. And it's Jesus goes down, and you watch this event that we've just talked about, and he goes down into the water. He comes up out of the water, and the heavens open. You hear that this is my beloved child, with whom I am well pleased and, um, and uh, the Holy Spirit um, shows up like a dove, and it's a remarkable uh, moment. And, and he says it's over, and Jesus now is walking back towards the shore, and you're in the shallows, and he turns and meets you, and says, it's your turn. So imagine this, as you're thinking about this text, that the next step is Jesus comes to you, and says, it's your turn. And you walk out to John the Baptist, and uh, and uh, he puts you down under the water, and you come back out, and the heavens open, and there's a voice, and you hear this voice that says, "You are my beloved child, with whom I am well pleased." And the exercise is intended for you to pray the text. So at some point you hear the voice and you see God as your parent. And you're overwhelmed by this grace. Only a couple times in my life, in the last 20 years, have I actually heard a voice of any sort that said that. And I was talking to Wilkie a couple weeks ago about this, and I said, So I, I said, you know, we I had this really interesting experience my last Sunday at Glendale Press, um, we did a little gathering at somebody's home just to, as a thanks and a farewell. And, um, and this woman introduces herself and she says, you don't know me, I've only seen you online. I've, but I, I, And I wasn't going to come today because I don't know you. Um, but I, I believed I needed to come and say to you this message and she shared with me what um, her time online had meant to her and sermons and those things and I shared that with Wilkie and he says Craig that's the Jordan prayer and I can tell you for the last 25 years I've missed that message from so many people that have been God's voice to me That's one of the ways you hear it is through each other. You're God's beloved children. You may differ on all kinds of things, but the people you're sitting next to this morning and close to are loved by God in the same way that you are. And before they do a thing, God says, you're my beloved. I hope and pray that you will be able to hear God's voice to you in the coming hours, days, weeks, months, years. And that it would be a time of grace, not for yourself alone, but that you could extend that to those you meet, to those that are in your um, presence, who are in proximity to where you live and where you work. And where you go to church. So no one is left out of God's amazing grace. Pray with me. God, I'm always amazed how much I need to hear that I'm beloved. I know it in my head. I've known it for 50 years. I've had people preach it to me, teach it to me, show it to me. And I walk around most of the time ignorant. And as a result, I'm almost no good to anybody around me. Because if I don't believe it for myself, how can I believe it for you? And for those you put in my path. Help me to hear your voice. Help me to be a messenger of your words, your kingdom, so everyone can know they're beloved by you. In Jesus' name, amen.